Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from past week here on Monaco Radio. This week, we uncover the latest developments of the Israel-Hamas war. It was very easy for them to say, we'll crush Hamas and we will get rid of Hamas. This is all clear. What will you do with Gaza the next day? Plus, we explore the best of surf photography. All the surfers, they are watching this and they are like, oh my God, I want to be there right now. I want to teleport myself and to be there right now. All that and much more in the next hour here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And this week here in Monaco, of course, we've been covering very closely the Israel-Hamas war. We will play a highlight from our show, The Briefing. We spoke with Esenia Svetlova, a Middle East analyst who formerly served as a member of the Israeli Knesset on behalf of the center-left Zionist Union Alliance. Let's have a listen. We all follow the recent statements of President Biden and, of course, the current uh, visit of uh, Anthony Blinken. I do think that it is significant, uh, maybe not only for in regards to what is happening right now in Israel, because, you know, the process is ongoing. You know, we are going for a war uh, and uh, this is uh, very real. And uh, I think that it didn't even begin uh, right now. It's only the preparation for this phase. Uh, but as uh, we are talking about Palestinian uh, autonomy, and Jordan, uh, possible next stops uh, on the Blinken's tour, uh, I think that it's important to see the big picture. Uh, because uh, if, uh, you know, during the war, there will be consequences, there will be riots in the West Bank, and then, you know, consequently, you know, we will have uh, 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 the same in Jordan. Uh, so the Jordanian Hashemite kingdom might be threatened, you know, the regime there might be threatened. The same goes, of course, uh, for Ramallah, where the regime is very, very weak. Uh, as it is today. Uh, so we are speaking about this mini club of um, uh, Israel's neighbors and what will be happening there, which is very, very significant. Yeah, it's such a potentially incendiary picture wherever you look. Let's talk a little bit, Senya, about the, the unity government, of course. What are your reflections on that? And it's interesting looking at some of the initial pledges, um, looking to change the strategic reality of the Gaza Strip. Do we have any sense yet of what that change might look like? Well, yes, first of all, the wording is important. Uh, you know, the Israelis keep stressing in the media, of course, that it's not the unity government. It's the government of the, the emergency uh, uh, government that uh, only uh, was created due to this uh, extraordinary situation uh, that we are living in today. Uh, and of course, you know, its first objective will be to take the necessary and painful decisions in regards to the next phase of war. Uh, which is, of course, uh, you know, uh, the ground operation uh, and uh, the equation uh, that uh, will uh, uh, take place in Gaza uh, uh, the next day. Uh, what will be happening after the, the ground operation? Uh, so uh, there, I think that uh, we are still, uh, you know, can only guess uh, what these decisions could be. Uh, and again, you know, so we are talking about People with same, you know, more or less the same background. You have Gallant, the Minister of Defense, Benny Gantz, uh, the ex Chief of Staff, and ex Minister of Defense as well, and of course Netanyahu. Uh, but uh, let's not forget that all of them are politicians. So when uh, you know, I, I put it, uh, you know, it was uh, interesting for me to realize 
when uh, those three sp spoke yesterday, that it was very easy for them to say, we'll crush Hamas and we will get rid of Hamas. This is all clear. What will you do with Gaza the next day? I personally do not see any Palestinian leader rushing uh, to take over Gaza. Uh, the day after the Israeli ground operation there is open and Gaza is devastated, uh, you know, and so on. So uh, this will be the uh, catch-22 uh, for Israel. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that, uh, you know, for, for now, at least there is no clarity whatsoever as uh, for this uh, this development. Well, yeah. And let me ask you about how Netanyahu may seek to navigate that catch-22 in which he and the country will potentially find, find itself. Obviously, if we look back, Netanyahu's approval ratings were were down. He was wrestling with his own uh, issues, the judicial overhaul and so forth. Um, is a sense developing about how the frustrations with the failures of Netanyahu personally and his administration in terms of intelligence and being uh, ready to be more reactive to this kind of threat? Are we, are we any closer to understanding what in the longer term that could mean for him personally? Well, you know, if you ask me, uh, I think that he's done. Uh, many people share the same belief. Uh, we see how his ministers are being chased away from funerals, from visiting the houses of those who grieve uh, today and so on. But also uh, this morning, uh, we heard a very extraordinary interview with the Minister of Education, Yoav Kish, from the Likud, from the governing party, from Netanyahu's party. And he said, I think it was his second time since the beginning of this terror attack, um, we all share this responsibility the government was uh, uh, busy with uh, uh, with uh, nonsense. This was his wording exactly. The government was busy with nonsense, with not important stuff. Uh, instead of focusing, of course, on uh, you know the uh, security and uh, stability in our borders. Uh, so uh, if you already hear this kind of voices five days uh, into the strategy from the Likud, I think you know when uh, we will hear more stories. And again, you know, the bodies are still being identified. Some of the stories, many of the stories are not known yet. Uh, and it will overwhelm the Israeli media. It will overwhelm the Israeli uh, public opinion. Uh, nothing else matters. Uh, for now, we already hear a lot of criticism, also from uh, uh, Netanyahu's own voters uh, and uh, MKs, you know. So this is uh, something that will just aggravate with time. Uh, in, in, according to some small polls that were conducted so far, overwhelming percentage of the Israelis hold his government responsible uh, for this uh, unbelievable failure. And uh, this is, of course, you know, very uh, right, because uh, after all, Netanyahu was a prime minister since 2009, except for one year and two months of uh, Bennett uh, Lapid's government. He was there for 14 years and he made sure that nobody else will share this responsibility with him uh, because he excluded uh, repeatedly all of his ministers, the members of the cabinet, uh, time and again, not only today, but also in 2014 and also in 2009. And we'll move on now to the Foreign Desk Explainer. And this week it's all about how Australians are preparing to vote in a historic referendum that would recognize indigenous citizens in the country's constitution by establishing an official voice to parliament. What is at stake? Let's have a listen. On Saturday, October 14th, Australians will vote in a referendum on whether to alter the country's constitution. The question they will be asked is this. A proposed law to alter the constitution to recognise the first peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Do you approve the proposed alteration? 
We will come back presently to what this means and to the chances of Australia deciding as a nation that this seems more or less fair enough. But first, an amount of absorbing, if not if we may venture so bold, downright riveting background vis-à-vis Australia's somewhat hyper-protective attitude to its constitution, which will help explain why Australia's Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, may be watching what seemed an easy win turn into an unforced error. It has been a long time since my fellow Australians were last asked whether we felt that our constitution needed tweaking. Saturday's referendum will indeed be the first such vote of the 21st century. Since Australia became a nation in 1901, 44 referendum questions on altering the constitution have been put to the Australian people for just eight positive results. And three of those in the clearly giddy year of 1977, maybe everybody was drunk or something, when Australians went yay on retiring federal judges at 70, fixing a loophole in the rules on filling midterm vacancies in the federal Senate, and allowing voters in Australia's territories, as well as its states, the joy of voting no in referendums. A fourth 1977 proposition was shot down in a manner illustrating another difficulty of winning constitutional referendums in Australia. You need not merely a majority of voters nationally, but a majority of Australia's six states, which is to say majorities of voters in at least four states. So in 1977, the idea of allowing elections for the House of Representatives and the Senate to be held at the same time won a thumping national majority, but Queensland, Western Australia and Tasmania were not persuaded, the weirdos, and so the motion was lost. After the defeat of the most recent constitutional referendum in 1999, asking whether or not Australians really felt like accident of birth in a foreign castle was the smartest way of choosing a head of state, it seemed that Australia's politicians had taken the hint and stopped asking. Alert listeners may recall at this point that Australians did have some sort of national vote a few years back, didn't they? About same-sex marriage in which they voted yes and be poised over their keyboards to fire off one of those exultant emails pointing out a factual error in a news broadcast, but steady on. That was a mere survey in which voting was voluntary, whereas this is a referendum in which voting is, as it is in all Australian elections, compulsory. Because to not put this to a vote, so to not put this to a vote is to concede defeat. When the voice was first mooted, it seemed like Anthony Albanese might have captured a moment. This time last year, the voice polled well north of sixty percent. The closer polling day has drawn, however, the less popular the voice has become. Current polling has it at just 40% and listing. Students voting outside of Sydney TAFE are divided. Me not knowing a lot about it, then I'm just going to stay out of it and just vote no. I haven't really seen a lot voting no on the news, but definitely seen a bit of that on social media. Such bookmakers as are offering odds have pretty much stopped taking bets on a no vote. Albanese is already in expectation management mode, rather wistfully offering that even if the vote is lost, the campaign has at least prompted valuable discussion of Indigenous issues. 
The question that reasonably arises is why support for The Voice appears to have tanked so dramatically. As we have learned above, in hopefully not over-exhausting detail, Australians really don't like changing their constitution, so there's that. There is also uncertainty and hesitation around what Australians are being asked to vote for. The referendum question only asks whether there should be a voice. It does not explain precisely whose voice it will be, what it might be asked, or the degree to which anybody will be obliged to listen to it. They don't understand it, Prime Minister, and that is a big, big issue. One of the things I said today was that uh, if you uh, haven't uh, considered all of uh, all of the details, ask more questions, that's fine. Albanese has been upfront about the fact that the vagueness is deliberate, citing the Republic referendum of 1999, which specified a particular model of a republic and was rejected on that basis by many basically Republican voters. That ambiguity, and this does seem like something someone should have seen coming, has been gleefully seized upon by opponents of The Voice, many of whom, listeners may not be shocked to learn, are to be found among Australia's own Yahoo cohort of the professionally noisy and ridiculous. By consenting to uh, having this extra chapter in the Constitution, it's only the beginning of it, what you're consenting to is the government of the day to bring in whatever legislation they want to to uh, into the parliament. They have flooded Australian media and social media with fatuous, paranoid fantasies of blameless suburbanites having their back gardens seized by way of reparations to the dispossessed. Nevertheless, if the voice is lost, Albanese will have nobody to blame but himself. Just as the same-sex marriage plebiscite stranded gay Australians in the crossfire of a culture war, the voice referendum has similarly marooned Indigenous Australians, who have problems enough as it is, which is why the voice was floated in the first place. The course of legislating the voice, or something like it, into being was always right there. And if Australia votes no on Saturday, that option is likely gone as well. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. And now we are heading to Seattle. Seattle is somewhat of a mecca for glass blowers. For decades, many of the world's leading glass artists have called the city home. Let's have a listen to this interesting package from the Seattle Glass Experience. On any given day, downtown Seattle is always a buzz. Sitting at the foot of the iconic Seattle Space Needle is Chihuly Garden and Glass. Upwards of half a million tourists flock here each year to see the permanent $20 million all-glass exhibition housed within these walls. It's a central venue for the upcoming Refract Seattle Glass Experience. And really, it's all thanks to one artist here that's made Seattle truly the heart of the global glass art scene. I'll let Taryn Coles, the assistant director at Chihuly Garden and Glass, explain. It really goes back to Dale Chihuly, who is an artist who is from Tacoma, which is just south of Seattle. He grew up in this area, and Dale Chihuly is really known for 
awakening studio glass in America. He really brought glass as an art form out of the factories and into personal studios where artists were really making things that were self-expression. And like a lot of artist movements, it all started at a grassroots level. Here's Taryn Coles again. In 1971, he invited artists from all over the world to come out to a tree farm just north of here. And that experiment became Pilchuck Glass School, which is still in operation today and is really responsible for all of these artists settling in this area. Seattle has the perfect climate for glass blowing. It never gets too hot. It's moist. And so people just flocked here and then really established an amazing collaborative community. And over the past 50 years since that first meeting of glass blowers at a tree farm, the glass community has exploded. Seattle now has more artists working in glass per capita and with more resources for studio glass than anywhere else in the world. That's exactly why glass artist Minhee England moved to the city 13 years ago. It was after she caught the so-called glass bug in art school. As soon as I stepped into the studio, I immediately fell in love with glass. It's a funny thing because you kind of know that it is an irrational pursuit, but that feeling of just knowing there's so many things in life that are unsure, but that feeling was for sure. I knew I wanted to pursue glass for the rest of my life. And I think mostly it's that I knew it would hold my attention. I never wanted to change my career path. So immediately I just knew. I kind of was already starting to get bored of being a 2D artist and glass just caught that spark that I was really looking for. And now glass artists are getting another platform that is really putting the spotlight on the medium and Seattle-based artists. Welcome to the Hot Shop. This season, my expectations are higher. We expect you to push your technical and conceptual skills to the limit. All right, let's blow some glass. The Netflix series Blown Away has been running for four seasons. Terms like Hot Shop, Pauline Kane, and knowing what an annealer is have kind of become known in households across the world thanks to glassblowing education that viewers take in from watching the show. Are you ready? Yeah, the pressure's high. The heat's a little higher. This glass can crack at any second. It's a one-shot deal. It has opened the Hot Shop to so many people that don't have that everyday access. This is going to be a hell of a competition. So close, so close. Some of the world's top glass blowers from the already small community have been on the reality series. In fact, Minhi England was the runner-up in season three. She says that the show has helped more people appreciate the medium. Blown Away has really put glassblowing on the map and it's conjured up all of this excitement in the glass world, which it very much needed. And it's fantastic because I think that glassblowing does have this drama and this excitement. And if you don't 
know about the process, it's really hard to fully appreciate the end result when you have no idea how it's even made. There's so much skill and technique and experience and thought that goes behind the process that Blown Away has really shown that to the general public. Dan Friday is a Seattle glass artist who is also part of Blown Away Season 3, alongside Minhi England. But unlike many glass artists, he didn't get his start in glass blowing through going to art school. Kind of by proxy of being in Seattle, in the large uh, network and community of glass artists here, I walked into a shop one day and I knew that that's what I wanted to do and kind of changed my career and life path is like a low-level criminal and tow truck driver into a glass apprentice, I guess. <laughs> and if there's one thing about glass art, it's that it takes a lifetime to perfect your technique. Dan Friday shows me some of his latest artwork that's on display. It's several colorful salmon glass sculptures that are hanging on the wall, which call on his indigenous Coast Salish ancestry from the local region. He explains how historically in the world of glass making, this is how it all kind of started. You know, in 4,000 years of making glass, some of the first things they made were glass fish, beads twisted on mandrels in Mesopotamia and Egypt and and stuff like that. And fast forward to 4,000 years later, it took me 25 years of making real ugly fish till I figured out this design to make a fish that I like. They were just too heavy to make solid and have this impact that these full-size ones do. So adding the blown and solid element really kind of turned that page for me. And I'm, I'm proud to add my little benchmark of 4,000 years of glass fish history, and these are mine. Refract the Seattle Glass Experience is a chance for visitors to see why this Pacific Northwestern city is home to such global glassblowing talent. Dan Friday is an artist who will be taking part. Minhi England will also be one of several artists doing a glassblowing demonstration. Hers will be six hours long, but as Taryn Coles from Chihuly Garden and Glass says, getting that up-close experience to see an artist truly at work is really what the festival is all about. One of the things that makes Refract so special is that it is about opening up artist studios that are normally private. It is highlighting gallery exhibitions. A lot of the galleries and museums in our area are holding special exhibitions and inviting special visiting artists for Refract so that Everyone's here at the same time. They have this opportunity to really showcase the medium. For Monocle in Seattle, I'm Sheena Rossiter. And as you know, listeners, every week I do my global countdown with the top five singles of a single country around the world. But this time, it's a little bit of a Madonna special, some of her most influential and iconic songs. And of course, she just started her new tour this weekend here in London. Yes, it wouldn't be a Thursday without Monocle's own Fernando Gusto Pacheco to bring us the global countdown. The time, Fernando, is now. And I gather, although you always serve us up something special, particularly significant global countdown ahead in the minutes 
to come here on the program? It's incredibly special today. And first of all, Tom, I mean, one thing I can tell you, London is booming this October. Uh, and I say this as well, because this Saturday, uh, Madonna will start her celebration tour and London will be the first uh, concert of her tour. And of course, it was an accidental first show because she had a near-death experience. Uh, so the show is supposed to start in Vancouver. But, you know, for reasons of destiny, she's starting here in London. And I prepared for you a chronological countdown of some of Madonna's best songs. Uh, that is all very exciting. But just briefly on that, she did have this uh, flirtation uh, with serious illness. We understand she's fine. Obviously, you'll be checking out both nights of the show here in, in London Town. But we can be assured she's fighting fit. She, it, it's, she's clear to go. There's no, there's no more jitters or, or worries about the, uh, the, the, the great lady's health. She is clear to go, definitely. And for the first time, Tom, she's going to perform her biggest hits. She was always very proud of performing the songs from her last album. She didn't like that idea. But I think this time is a celebration. Apparently, there'll be a mixture of theatre, of play. But, I mean, it's everything's been secretive so far. Uh, I very much look forward to Saturday. Well, we might be starting, therefore, if we look at her anthology way back what think about it Fernando it's four, 40 years ago nearly 40 years her first single was Everybody in 1982 but that's not our first song we start in 1984 and by the way it's not five songs it's six songs today because I just couldn't I just couldn't do it five songs only uh, 1984 from her album Like a Virgin I decided not to choose Like a Virgin which is also another iconic track but I think this song that we're going to play now I think established Madonna as this icon and in fact for the following decade or so she's new as the title of the song it's Material Girl of course <laughs> What a song. Now, Faye, tell me, do you think Madonna knew, 84, 85, did she know what she was becoming? Is she one of those artists that would have kind of been thinking about still performing 40 years down track? It's, it's kind of hard when you hear that and you think of the journey artistically that she's been on to imagine that that was the case. What do you think? I think she's very self-aware. Uh, and in a way, I mean, you look at Madonna, she's 65. Of course, she had the near-death experience, but she was always very controlled about her life. I mean, you have so many artists with problems, with drugs, all sorts of problems, you see. Uh, but not with Madonna. I think she always knew what she wanted. She always said, I want to conquer the world. Uh, and even this song, Material Girl, is tongue-in-cheek. And that's what I like about Madonna. Of course, she's not necessarily a material girl, uh, but, you know, it was a portrait of the decade. Uh, I mean, everybody wanted money, the UP, UP era, right? Uh, I mean, I think she knew that. She knew exactly what she was doing there. Uh, well, and she's always been an iconoclast as well. She's been an antagonist, a provocateur. Um, I imagine that might be reflected in your selections. Maybe the next one. She has a particular skill for knowing how to entertain and cajole and delight her audience, but also to... I don't know, get people who who don't like her, who don't agree with her message, 
talking about her. She loves that. And this song from 1989, this song actually she started to become respected as an artist because a lot of people said, oh, her voice sounds like Helion, you know, they were comparing to Minnie Mouse. There were a lot of detractors <laughs> back then. But I think this time even the critics say, oh, hold on. She can actually write an amazing song. She's an incredible performer. She's not just kind of this pop starlet. I mean, it is a beautiful song. Let's have a listen. And then, of course, you mentioned Provocateur. I mean, this song was extremely controversial and the video for it as well. It is like a prayer, of course. Our global listeners can't hear Fernando singing along. <laughs> Maybe they can. I don't know how. I don't know how sensitive the mics are. The mics are. Um, Fernando, our next jump, a short hop, uh, uh, chronologically, um, just a, th- a year, maybe a year, a year or two later. Um, and yet it marked a real change, I think, tonally. Uh, you talked about the video in terms of the aesthetic, um, owning the space a bit more, and again, moving maybe a little bit away from that controversy to more confident as an artist is that unfair lots of confidence Uh, you know she started to play with kind of house music as well I think this song is very iconic and one thing this song was inspired by the voguing clubs in New York City so she also used a lot of uh, gay culture and and there's one thing about gay culture with Madonna Tom I think today you know, people, they very easy brandish someone like a gay icon. I mean, Madonna was really a true gay icon. I mean, at the time in the 90s, I mean, we'll talk this a little bit later as well. There was the AIDS crisis. I think she was quite open about it in a way that at the time, you know, not many artists did that. But this song, I mean, it's still influential. Beyonce actually reworked a little bit uh, one of the verses of this track. So, I mean, we're still dancing to it. It's the incredible Vogue from 1990. Billy Garbo, Anne Monroe, Dietrich and DiMaggio, Marlon Brando, Jimmy Dean, on the cover of a magazine, Grace Kelly, Harlow Jean, picture of a beauty queen, Jean Kelly, Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, dance on air, they had style, they had grace, Rita Hayward gave good face, Lauren Kaplan, Manitou, Betty Davis, we love you, ladies with an attitude, fellas that were in the mood, Let's forget about that kind of housey Chicago piano. I love it. I love it. And and that's, I think, the first rap that I ever sang in my life. <laughs> Greater Garbo and Moreau. You know, it's it's a good, it's a very good song. It's kind of, yeah, it's uh, it's not rap as I, as it was perhaps originally devised. And I should just say, when Fernando says, we're still dancing to it, he was yeah, I wasn't so much. But Tom, one interesting thing about Vogue, the video was directed by David Fincher. One thing that Madonna always does very well, she uses the best artists to help her, the best producer, the best video. That's that's remarkable about her. She does have a very good vision for what she wanted and she hires definitely the best Well, people. and I think lots of artists who have real longevity, decade upon decade upon decade, they have this singular pursuit of... The music, they're interested in the cutting edge, in continuing to innovate. There's never a laziness about it. And say what you like about Madonna, and I have banded a few (laughs) things around. She is a creature of reinvention, and that's what lots of the era-defining artists are very good at doing. Let's move on, Fernando. Now, you have spoken to me about this specific track before, (laughs) back in the early 90s. Um, Not everybody would probably have this on their top, maybe 
20 Madonna tracks, but I knew that you would have this on your list. Explain why. I think, you know, that shows that Madonna can also be subversive. And, and to be fair, Tom, after with this song, and I'll explain why, there was the time where, you know, Madonna, I mean, she was the biggest star of the time, but people were saying she's pushing the button a bit too far. Uh, I mean, the song is dark, experimental, and it came, this album, Erotica, came together with her book, Sex, by the photographer Stephen Meisel, which I think it's an art piece. Uh, but, you know, at the time, you know, I mean, she was, uh, you know, Naked. There was a lot of kind of bondage in the in the in the in, in the book. Not many pop stars do that. Not even today, I have to say. Uh, I love this track. I think it shows that subversive side of Madonna that I very much enjoyed. But not everyone did, I have to say. So after that, I mean, she did had some troubles with her image. But I love it. This is erotica. It's not a regular. It's not a regular. But Midori Tower. It should be, but you know, I, I am controlled. And that's not Madonna, it's Dita, her outer ego. You know, she is kind of, she invites her lover to be submissive to her. Can I also say it's a lot easier to cover some of these slightly more nebulous areas if you give them a certain elan in pronunciation? I like that you said bondage, <laughs> Fernando. <laughs> I, I think I know. I think our <laughs> listeners will know where you were going with that one. Uh, let's quickly move on. Uh, we jump in a little bit further. We're ticking towards the millennium. Um, tell, me, tell me what you've got next. We are going to listen Frozen from her album Ray of Light, which was a little bit of a rebirth for Madonna. As I said, after Erotica, I mean, she did release uh, an album. She performed uh, Evita, a great film, I think. But I think Ray of Light shows that Madonna can also be experimental and advance to the next decade. Once again, she worked with William Orbit. So there's a lot of kind of folk, electro, ambient sound. It's a very mature Madonna, uh, this video again. She just had her... Her daughter, uh, Lourdes, uh, it's a beautiful, I think is, in my opinion, perhaps one of the best uh, Madonna albums ever. And this single, it's extremely special. The video for it, you know, she shapeshifts into a flock of birds, into a black dog, directed by Chris Cunningham. What a song. And again, quite mystic and mysterious as well. But it was still number one all, all over the world. That's, again, that only Madonna can do. This is Frozen. This was around the time also she was kind of sending herself up doing the like Austin Powers. Was that this kind of era? Yeah. Was that the she, same sort of time? It, it, the, the year after she did Beautiful Stranger, you know, so there was it's still, you know. And it's proof positive again that despite pushing the envelope and achieving that um, kind of seriousness as an artist, she still was self-aware enough always to poke a little bit of fun, which is perhaps a secret, I think another it, secret of her longevity. I think this is a very elegant transition for our last track, and that's why I chose music from 2000, which is not that far away from Ray of Light. Uh, I think with music, 
you know, we knew that Madonna can be mature, can exper- experiment with all those sounds, but she's a pop star, you know. And so you say, you know what? I'm going to release a great disco electrofunk track that's going to dominate, that's going to be number one in 25 different countries worldwide. And she has that power. And I think that's why I chose music. It was a hard one to choose music because I could have chosen Hung Up in 2006, which had a similar uh, effect. But this song, the robotic sound, it's a little bit trashy, but on a best possible way. Let's have a listen to music. Fernando's absolutely oh. loving this. He's breathless. Fernando, let me just say, I don't want to antagonise you, but a cynic may say, hang on a minute, you've picked your six favourites or six great tracks. You've only got up to the year 2000. We've had a quarter of a century since. It is the great lady on the wane creatively I will give you the floor to dispute that not at all not at all as I said it was very hard to choose the last track Hung Up from 2005 but even if I may say her last album Madame X from 2019 I thought once again experimental she was living in Portugal she collaborated with different artists I think it's a great great album so no I think she's very much creative and I very much look forward for her next album maybe I have to do a second Global Countdown special Madonna I mean it's your fault it's it's agreed Fernando (laughs) UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today to find out how we could help you Contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator, a weekly highlight show here on Monaco Radio. And this week, the city of Detroit has been hosting the World Economic Forum's Urban Transformation Summit, one of the topics high on the agenda for the civic leaders, businesses and activists there was delivering better, more sustainable and safer environments for all citizens. This is a key issue for Corinne Reynolds, the director of nighttime economy for the city of Boston. Monaco's senior foreign correspondent, Carlotta Rebelo, caught up with Corinne and asked her why Boston decided to make the nighttime economy a priority. It's one of those things where it's a retention issue, it's a revitalization issue. We're coming back from the pandemic and we want Boston to be just as thriving and vibrant as it was prior to the pandemic, if not more. We are home to a bunch of industries. We have a ton of students, life science industry. And so how do we attract and retain talent? And that third space, the place where people uh, do their sports or, or health and wellness or where they go out to dinner and eat, that's vital to determining whether they want to stay in a city or move to a city. Whether our residents want to walk out and enjoy the restaurant, how do they do that? 
where are the opportunities for that? And so we're looking at the night as just a, another way to be thoughtful about our economy. Now, we talk a lot about the nighttime economy, the nighttime city. We were just in a session about the 24-hour city, and I think that poses an interesting way of thinking about our urban environments, which is not daytime and nighttime, but actually all hours of the day. Exactly. Um, one of the issues raised here was transportation and exactly addressing the way people move around cities at all these different times of day. How crucial is to unlock transportation in an affordable, safe, sustainable manner to allow the city to truly be 24 hours? What I'm hearing from a lot of our constituents is transportation is one of the number one issues and barriers to a thriving nighttime economy and a 24-hour economy, really. We have a lot of third shift workers that work beyond those hours where our public transit serves our city. And, you know, when we're thinking of an affordable city, allowing public transit to serve those third shift workers is critical. So I mentioned all of those students that we have. How are those students getting home? It has to be Uber or Lyft. But these students don't have large incomes, and our surge prices go to like $70 to go two miles, right? And so when we're thinking about affordability and livability and quality of life, transit is so important in that equation. But also is important to think beyond just the bars and restaurants right. and the nightlife right. and right. to think about the jobs the nighttime can create, how people are moving around the city and utilizing city space. What are some of the ways you are addressing these questions and rethinking how the city positions itself after dark? Well, our transit system is a regional transit system, and so having a seat at the table is super important when we're thinking about a large table of folks throughout the state. And so we have now gotten a seat at the board for transportation, and, and, and that's really going to be representative of our Boston-specific issues. We will be able to highlight things that are intrinsically focused on us and that we face as a city, and that's critical when we're talking to MBTA officials. The issue is with our transit system, it's not at prime optimization during the day. So we have to address those issues first to ensure that we can extend service into the night safely. And then as a city, we have invested significantly in our infrastructure. We have bike lanes that go across the city through our greenways, thinking through our bus services. We have designated some bus services that connect folks from one end of the city to the other that go a little bit later than our trains, as well as making them free so that people, working class folks, can afford them, can get to where they need to go and rely on them as a, a public way of moving around the city. Now, one of the other things that we talked about here was bringing people back to the downtown of the city. Now, you talked about a really interesting example of the conversations you've been having with developers about how can they not only adapt buildings to be residential, but some of the, let's say, concessions that need to be made by both prospective residents and developers in order to respect the particularities of a nighttime economy as well. Tell us a bit more about that. 
we want a thriving, bustling downtown area, as any city wants, right? But we are folk, uh, faced with some issues as far as like the utilization of office space. And so what we've recently passed is a strategy to rezone some of these office spaces in our downtown area for residential purposes. Now, this serves two different things, right? We have a bit of a housing crisis in the city of Boston and an affordability issue when it comes to housing as well. So we plan on utilizing this rezoning to solve for some of that. But when you bring more residents in, that sometimes can create issues between that vibrant nightlife extended day that we are trying to build. And so there are some examples that we're looking to adopt from other cities. I believe Austin is looking to do this as well, where we do sound assessment of the businesses around them, and then we could potentially require developers to show that sound assessment to potential residents. And if resident uh, signs a lease, they are agreeing to the sound that is omitted in the environment that they are living. And so that kind of mitigates some of the complaints that we may get (laughs) down the road when you hear the noise coming in from your window from the the restaurant down the street. And now a highlight from my show, The Stack, about the world of print media. This time I spoke with Gaspar Conrad about his new book for Gestalten, Surf Porn, showcasing the best surf photography worldwide. I live in and grew up in Paris, uh, France, but my grandmother and part of my family live in Biarritz, France, also in the southwest in front of the Atlantic Ocean with the waves and everything. I used to go there for all my holidays. Uh, we had uh, the chance to have a um, house really in front of the waves on a sand dune. So, in fact, I, I, I grew up there, I, I mean, in my early days. So each time I, I went out, it was for body surfing or surfing or being in the ocean. My passion with surfing began like that. The other thing is that for the imagery, I used to have on my computer back in the days uh, like, you know, folders, different folders for different topics. I had like art and design, sketch, surf, and I used to collect the beautiful uh, photos that I found on the uh, internet uh, at this time. So I found the photos on the uh, blogs, on the Tumblr blogs or something like this. I used as well to collect all the magazines, the surfer journals, which is one of the greatest uh, magazines in surfing, uh, but also all the old French magazines. And so I collect this. And once Instagram appears to be something, you know, back in something like 2009 or 2010, I was back from the Basque country to to Paris at the end of the summer. And I was like, no, I'm so frustrated because the surfing now is behind me and I have to go back to school or something like this, or maybe go back to work because I was something like 25, 26. And I used to create this account, you know, called surf porn because the food porn was something. There There was this expression and... Once I created Surfpon, I put something like 20 shots at one time on the account with only the best of the best that I could find on, um, I could find on my computer, sorry. And slowly it began to be something. And at the time I had only like uh, some dozens of followers and after thousands of followers and they understood that I posted like every week something like two or three or four photos, but all the time it was something very artsy or original, not, you know, with the classic imagery that we can find in surfing that are very close-up action sports view, you know. With Surfpon, it was something different. 
because surfing is something different and I wanted to express my point of view like that. And what's your relationship with the photographers? Are they happy, you know, to be featured in such an account, which, I mean, your account, I mean, as you said, these days is super popular and that's why perhaps it became a book now, which we'll talk later. The photographers are softball, in fact. They are the account. Me, I am nothing but someone that is frustrated in Paris, you know, and just wanted to show to the world the best surf shots that I can find. So the photographers are everything to me. And, you know, once the account began to have like hundreds of thousands of followers, I used to speak for the first time with some of the people I admire the most. And I was very happy to speak with them. And since the beginning, I always tagged the photographers, you know, on the photos, in the caption. And it was very important for me to to put them on the front row, you know, to be able to showcase their work. It was something very important for me. And who had the idea for the book? Did Gestalten perhaps approach you or you always wanted to actually have a physical product in the end to celebrate it? Yeah, it was my dream. My past 10 years, I've been nothing but surfing because I used to start a very big business in France, nothing in common with surfing. But I built a company called WeFix with my two partners and we have been the leader in France for the smartphone stripper. So if you broke your glass or have a problem with batteries, we have 150 shops in France and we sold this business to a giant retailer called Plank Darty. Once we sold the business, I told myself, okay, once uh, we will finish our earnout about three years, I will make a project uh, with Surfborn. And the first project was to make a book. So once I left my job at Wifix, after selling it, I began to work on a book. And, you know, I knew nothing about editing, about the publishing companies, the editors, the distribution channels and everything. So I contacted a lot of people and Gestalten loved the project. And it was my main target because I love what they do on the books. I, I used to have a lot of uh, books from them. And so it started like this. And after that, uh, step by step, we slowly build this amazing book. And how did you choose the, the cover picture as well? It's so magical. I mean, I need a print of that. <laughs> you know what? Uh, the, the little story about the cover is that at the beginning, I, you know, the name Surf Porn is so good. I wanted to have uh, written on the cover the words surf and porn in a huge typo like this. And Gestalten told me, you know what? I think we, we should put a photo uh, on the cover because it's a photography book. And we will put this one. So they choose this one with me, of course. And they told me, you know what? If we put this one, I think it will be way better for selling, you know, the, the book. So it was not my first shot, but at the end, I think it's a legendary shot, exceptional shot, and I think it will work well. And if you put it on the shelf with other books, you know, this one is yellow, so it will be like shining in the eyes of everyone who is uh, passing around, you know. I'm really proud of it, and it's a shot from Mike Kutz, which is from Hawaii. And none of the less is that the, the shot is exceptional, but the photographer is also exceptional. He's uh, an ex-pro surfer. He lost his leg from a shark attack a few years back and now he's passionate about sharks so if you hear this go check his instagram account his name is mike kutz and he's a legend and this shot is a legendary shot i'll definitely be checking that and and, and tell us what, what for you makes a good surf picture because you did mention that perhaps in the surf press there's a lot of kind of sometimes close-ups and you know it's all about the sport and kind of but yours there's something quite beautiful quite contemplative in a way almost right but i guess there's space for all exactly. types of imagery exactly but at the time when i created surf porn my main goal was to put photos of lineups a lineup in surfing is when 
you saw all the spots, you know, you can see the shore, the trees, the waves. And in fact, that kind of shots with the good light, the good colors, the great waves and like a picture perfect shot. All the surfers they are watching this and they are like, oh my God, I want to be there right now. I want to teleport myself and to be there right now. I think a great shot, it's when, you know, they really want to be in that picture, you know, to teleport themselves to be in that picture. And after this, of course, it's a great mix of the great color, the, you know, the landscapes. Like I love to put like dramatic landscapes and with the little surfer in front of it. You know, surfing, we are nothing in, in the ocean. It's like a huge wave coming in the huge landscape. It's very large, you know. I really like when the photographers are retranscripting this. It's a contemplative way to watch this. We're back with the curator here on Monaco Radio. And now, an 18th century townhouse not far from London's Liverpool Street Station has become the setting for an exhibition by a pair of artists better known for huge, dramatic installations which change cities. Christo and his wife, Jean-Claude, made their name with huge dramatic events such as wrapping the Reichstag in Berlin in 1995 or constructing a giant floating pile of barrels to brighten the serpentine in London. The new exhibition focuses on Christo's early work. Emma Nelson went down to have a look. It is the biggest venture ever by the Bulgarian-born showman known as the world's original rap artist, Christo. So is it a work of art or a lavish conceit? They were the wrappers of buildings, the persuaders of and negotiators with major cities who would swathe landmarks in cloth, only for the whole thing to vanish days later. Well, now in an 18th century house in East London, the roots of the strange but beautiful legacy of Christo and his wife Jean-Claude are on display. And we begin on the ground floor. Hello, I'm Elena Jair and I'm an independent curator and we are at 4 Princelet Street in Spitalfield, London. This uh, very surprising house in Princelet Street, four-story Georgian, very intimate, frozen in time, in which, you know, the paneling stays the same. The floors are the floors of 200 years ago. The attic reminds us of the Huguenot refugee that came over in the 17th, 18th century. There is a lot of souvenir of ghosts in this house, which... When I walked in here, I was really fascinated because they echoed to me with Christo's past. Born in communist Bulgaria in 1935, Christo escaped to the West alone. He went through Prague, Vienna, Geneva and then to Paris and then eventually to New York in 1964. He remained stateless for 17 years and it's something his nephew says was key to Christo's work. Hi, my name is Vladimir Yavachev. I'm Christo's nephew and I've worked with Christo and Jean-Claude for 32 years. What's it like being here in front of Christo's early work in such a strange building? I wouldn't call it strange. It's historic. It's beautiful. I think the works fit the space very well and the space fits the works. If I have to be poetic about it, if you feel the immigration history of this space, and you feel the immigration history of Christo because he uh, was the constant étranger, as he liked to say, when he talked about his work. It defined him very much because he's coming from a communist Bulgaria. His whole life and work, because he didn't separate the two as a true artist, his whole life and work was, as he called it, a scream for freedom. And it was important for him to have his independence. That's why the projects were never sponsored. 
Together with his wife Jean-Claude, they made sure that every project was theirs alone. All our project is about freedom. Nobody can buy this project. Nobody can own this project. Nobody can charge tickets for this project. They're there for a few days and they're gone. We're used to the couple's work taking the public space and turning it into art. In this latest exhibition in London, the effect of wrapping, of not knowing what's inside, is just as powerful when applied to household objects. And there's a strong domestic logic to this tour. Christo's son's buggy is placed, wrapped, in the first room, as if it's been dropped off there ready to be unpacked and pushed out of the door. Then up the stairs we go. On the first floor, we encounter, on the large sitting room, the luggage, the rack package on a luggage rack, which is covered up in brownish tarpaulin, which is exactly what people used to do in the 60s. I remember very well my father, when we used to depart for the three months holiday in Italy, they would put up something like this on the top of the big family car with all the suitcases wrapped up in this brown fabric. And this gives an idea of motion, of precariousness, of movement. And as we were saying, we're moving upstairs. Uh, you have intimate works of art. And for the first time, actually, on display that I've never seen before, this pair of wonderful light blue shoe belonging to Jean-Claude. Quite often, the artist confiscated his wife's shoes and she was going around trying to find them. When you were talking to Christo over a decade ago and thinking about doing an exhibition like this, what clues did he give you as to how he might want it to look and what he might want to include in any exhibition? We were trying to identify at the time uh, early works that would create a dialogue and explain what actually everybody, as you were saying, knows about Cristo. The large installation, the storefronts, you know, all the landscape, large environmental installation that it did. Up we go again. Take me up to the final floor and explain so we, what we have up here. We're moving to the top floor, which is the attic. Steep, steep. How much exercise did you have doing we, this project? We've been doing a lot of exercise, let me tell you, with Jérôme Zeman going up and down. The top floor is for the mind. There's a pile of magazine wrapped in bundles, freezing words in time, all ready for the recycling. You choose. So why are we in the attic and why do we have magazines? And next door, a wonderful wrapped object from 1962, which mysteriously makes us think is suggestive of the shape of a typewriter, but we don't know what's inside. And, and it's, you know, letting out our unconscious develop and create images. That's the power of Christo's work that we wouldn't have in another way. So who lives in the attic? Maybe a poet, maybe a writer, maybe any of us that wants to have, you know, quiet time looking at magazine or typing away. And we thought it would be a nice way to conclude the exhibition. And the exhibition gets the family approval. I think you would have loved to see the show in this space because it almost looks like the space that they were created. So the, 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 I mean, as you look, it's all, you, you can almost feel that these works were actually made here and not 60 years ago, but, or 60-some years ago. 
but like they, they belong here in a way. So he would have really loved to, to, to see those works here. The exhibition is part of Gagosian Open, which places world-class art in unusual contexts. The show is open until the 22nd of October, after which, in the tradition of Christo, it'll all be gone. And that's all we've got time in this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week and thank you for listening. Music